0: To some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of most of the people and places mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject Grigori Rasputin <laughs> Now let's continue with part two of our story about Grigory Rasputin. As 1916 began, conditions in Russia continued to deteriorate profoundly. The war was a disaster with an additional one million casualties. One in four new recruits were ordered to the front with no weapons and the suggestion that they arm themselves by obtaining firearms from a newly killed compatriot. Russian troops spent most of 1915 in retreat from Poland, Lithuania, and parts of Russia itself. Food on the home front was not only wildly expensive, staples like flour, sugar, and butter began to disappear. Everyday life was even more arduous than normal. Russians began to believe that their problems were the result of foreign influences in government, Jews secretly manipulating the economy, and German agents colluding with the Tsarina to undermine the war effort. Rasputin was a central part of these conspiracy theories, his relationship with the Tsarina and his previous pacifism, a known quantity. As 1916 unfolded, the Russian government and society were approaching a crisis. Fundamentals of infrastructure were breaking down with the disintegration of the rail system and an inability to even transport food staples to major population centers. Rasputin's personal life was also deteriorating, his drinking becoming constant and uncontrollable. His daughter Maria would later write that Rasputin felt an impending sense of foreboding and hostility and that his life was in danger. In fact, a pronounced struggle between members of the royal family, including Nicholas's mother, the Dowager Empress Maria, His sister Olga and Grand Dukes Paul and Alexander pleading with the Tsar to get rid of Rasputin and any ministers perceived to be beholden to him, and the perpetual drumbeat of religious-based doggerel and advice emanating from Alexandra resulted in a stalemate in which Nicholas did nothing. Isolated at the headquarters of the general staff, the Tsar was far away from the political and social turmoil of the capital, something which prevented him from recognizing the rapidly growing instability of his government. In November, the Duma reconvened, and on November 19th, a member and politician named Vladimir Perishkovich delivered a scathing denunciation of Rasputin and a demand that his influence be completely removed. The speech was greeted with enthusiastic applause and prolonged cheering, and at least one spectator in the parliamentary gallery decided to request a personal meeting with Perishkovich as soon as possible. Prince Felix Yusupov had already decided that words alone would no longer solve the Rasputin problem. Yusupov was a member of one of the wealthiest families in Russia. Wealthier, it was said, than even the Tsar. Although he was educated at Oxford, Yusupov led an aimless and pampered existence, augmented by a huge fortune inherited when his brother and only sibling was killed in a duel over an adulterous affair. While all of Russia teetered on the brink of collapse and suffered terribly from a murderous war, Yusupov's main focus was the redecoration of the family palace in central St. Petersburg. Despite rumors of bisexuality, in 1914, Yusupov married the Grand Duchess Irina, the only niece of Tsar Nicholas II and reputedly the most beautiful woman in Russia. Their only daughter, also named Irina, was born in 1915. Yusupov had already decided that he would personally kill Rasputin, prompted by conversations with both his mother and a cabinet minister who complained that no one in Russia had the courage to commit the crime. Shortly after hearing Perishkovich's speech, Yusupov met with him at the parliamentarian's home. He was already actively recruiting conspirators and sensed correctly that the man would join the plot. By the 24th, Yusupov had recruited four participants and had even acquired cyanide, the agreed upon method of killing Rasputin. With Perishkovich, Yusupov assembled a 29 year old infantry lieutenant, Sergei Sukhotin, a doctor who was a close friend of Perishkovich, Stanislaw Lazovert, and most prominent of all, the Grand Duke Dmitry, son of Grand Duke Paul, the brother of Tsar Alexander III and uncle of Nicholas II. Dimitri was a skilled sportsman and equestrian who had competed in the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. Yusupov had met Rasputin but had not interacted with him since early 1915. As a ruse, he asked a mutual friend of his family to arrange a meeting to discuss some health issues the prince was experiencing. Rasputin agreed readily, and Yusupov subsequently wrote of this meeting in his memoirs, a dramatic account of a battle of wills in which the prince referred to, quote, Rasputin's glittering eyes, two phosphorescent beams of light melting into a great luminous ring, which at times drew nearer and then moved away. I had the feeling that a merciless struggle was being fought between Rasputin and me, between his personality and mine, unquote. Yusupov continued to meet with Rasputin and then offered the ultimate bait, a visit to his home to meet Yusupov's wife, Irina, an invitation that the lecherous Rasputin, having never met the glamorous and beautiful arena, couldn't conceivably turn down. He didn't. Yusupov notified his conspirators that they could carry out their plan on December 16th. His wife would actually be at another family palace in the Crimea. St. Petersburg, patriotically renamed Petrograd during the war in December 1916, was a grim and volatile place. Political demonstrations normally repressed by the police and military now occurred with official indifference and even sympathy. Food and fuel shortages were acute, with an economy in the grips of runaway inflation. The Duma and press were highly critical of the government, which seemed listless in the midst of crisis, while the public openly disrespected the monarchy with demands that the, quote, dark forces, unquote, behind the throne be removed. Alexandra responded to these darkening clouds with a complete delusion concerning the situation, her letters underlining the essential need for Rasputin's input and influence and demands that Nicholas autocratically squelch any opposition. Observers described Rasputin in December of 1916 as withdrawn, even depressed, He frequently made pronouncements of his own doom and great calamity for Russia, although after achieving prominence, Rasputin always linked the future of the country with his own well-being. He also was one of many Russians that sensed something terrible was approaching. By December 16th, Rasputin was routinely receiving death threats in the mail. His morning started with a threat delivered by telephone. Anna Virubova showed up at his apartment in the afternoon for tea and conversation and Rasputin told her of his impending visit with Prince Yusupov. She was alarmed, especially because it was scheduled for so late in the evening, after midnight. Rasputin brushed off her concerns. Felix merely did not want his parents, who were hostile to Rasputin, to be aware of the visit and Irina was entertaining guests earlier in the evening. There was nothing to worry about. When Anna related her conversation to Alexandra later that evening, the Tsarina was also taken aback. As a result of the close-knit relationships within the Russian royal family, she knew that Irina was in the Crimea, and the elder Yusupovs were also not in Petrograd. Alexandra assumed that there must be some mistake. Yusupov was also busy at his palace on the Moika Canal. He prepared a cellar room with decorations, Madeira wine, Rasputin's favorite, and cakes to keep Rasputin occupied until he supposedly would get to meet Irina after her house guests left. The other conspirators arrived and spiked the pastries and wine with cyanide. Lazarev even donned a chauffeur's uniform to convey Prince Yusupov to Rasputin's apartment. To avoid the police agents in the front of the building, Yusupov entered the apartment, as he did habitually, through a back staircase. Within minutes, Rasputin and the prince were being driven back to Yusupov's palace. The most familiar story of what ensued came from an account written by Yusupov in 1927, Rasputin and the prince entered the house from a side door and made their way to the cellar sounds of music and voices supplying the background of the cover story Yusupov and Rasputin exchanged small talk and the holy man ultimately ate the cakes and drank some madeira the prince becoming alarmed when the poison items seemed to have no effect Rasputin began to grow impatient and made vague suggestions about knowing what Felix was up to panicked Yusupov went upstairs and retrieved the grand duke's revolver He went back downstairs and, after a few moments of hesitation, told Rasputin to say a prayer and shot him in the midsection. The gunshot brought the rest of the conspirators into the cellar, Rasputin seemingly dead on the floor's bearskin rug. At this point, supposedly the men then left Rasputin in the cellar, went back upstairs, and three of the conspirators, one dressed in Rasputin's overcoat, drove back to Rasputin's apartment to make it appear to any police that he had returned safely for the night. When the men returned, the group congratulated each other until Yusupov claimed he became concerned and wanted to make sure that Rasputin was actually dead. The body was as they had left it, but suddenly Yusupov noticed that one eye was twitching. As he moved closer, suddenly both eyes, quote, the green eyes of a viper, unquote, opened wide and Rasputin, foaming at the mouth, leapt to his feet and tried to grab Yusupov around the neck. This from an individual who was shot in the midsection and allegedly poisoned with enough cyanide to kill half a dozen men. Yusupov managed to get away from Rasputin's grasp and ran up the stairs, screaming for help. The rest of the group quickly pursued Rasputin out into the side courtyard, the wounded Staritz crawling on all fours, bellowing that he would tell the Tsarina everything. Parishkovich then drew his own revolver and put two more bullets into the lurching Rasputin, slowing him down until two more rounds finished the job. The body was dragged back inside, quickly wrapped in a rug, driven to a bridge on the edge of the city, and tossed into the freezing water. By the time he wrote his first account, Felix Yusupov's family was living in exile, having lost their entire fortune, save for any jewels or belongings they carried during their flight. The only thing Felix possessed of any value was his knowledge of the death of Rasputin. The more dramatic the account, the more valuable. Unfortunately, there are some gaping holes in his description of Rasputin's death. It is impossible that the powdered substance administered to Rasputin could have been cyanide. Actual cyanide in such a large dosage would have killed him or anyone else in a matter of seconds. Several theories about the actual shooter have also evolved. The conspirators not wanting Grand Duke Dmitry, a royal, to have to take the blame for the murder. Perhaps Yusupov or even Perishkovich might have initially wounded Rasputin, prompting the physically strong and probably intoxicated man to attempt to flee the palace. Whatever the sequence, a bullet into the forehead of Rasputin is what ultimately killed him. Who actually shot him and exactly how will never be ascertained. Rumors of the death of Rasputin were sweeping the capital even before the exhausted Yusupov awoke on December 17th. Although they had sworn each other to eternal secrecy, Periskovich did the conspiracy little good by immediately telling just about anyone who would listen that Rasputin was dead. Nearby police had heard gunshots at four in the morning emanating from the palace and had launched a preliminary investigation. By mid-morning, investigators were already examining bloodstains at the Yusupov Palace courtyard and interrogating the prince. He denied that Rasputin had even been at his home on the morning in question. Parishkovich quickly left for the Romanian front, bringing his family with him. Eventually, passers-by noticed bloodstains on the Petrovsky Bridge. When a watchman observed a boot lying near the bridge on the ice, a police search of the area ensued. It would take divers to find the body which had actually frozen to the bottom of the ice. It was removed, photographed, placed in a wooden coffin, and driven away in an ambulance. Rasputin's autopsy would ascribe the cause of death to gunshot, one in the chest, one in the back, and one administered at close range directly into the forehead. There was no poison in his system. His face was horribly bruised, most of the damage probably administered by hitting the side of the bridge on the way into the river. Tales of Rasputin's lungs having filled with water so that he actually drowned after emerging from chains around his body or his dying while giving the sign of the cross have been repeated perpetually, despite having no foundation. The famous photograph of his cadaver's upraised arms are the result of rigor mortis, and in their haste or distraction, the conspirators did not put weights or chains on the body, merely tossing these items into the river to discard them. Rasputin was quickly buried in a small ceremony attended by Nicholas and Alexandra, their four daughters, Anna Virabova, and a few courtiers. The burial site was to be a small chapel under construction by Virobova in Sarsko Salo, but deliberately not on any palace grounds. While the investigation continued, it was clear to Nicholas that both Yusupov and Dmitri were lying about their involvement in the murder. Dmitri was quickly ordered to report to the general staff in the Caucasus, essentially exile. Yusupov was also banished from the capital, sent to a family state in central Russia, where he lived with his wife and child in relative luxury. None of the conspirators were ever charged with any crime. The news of Rasputin's death was greeted publicly with ecstatic approval. Ultimately, the transformation that the nobility and the political elite hoped to bring about with the murder of Rasputin did not occur. At the end of February 1917, A spontaneous Petrograd march of women chanting for bread metastasized into a general strike, and political demonstrators began smashing windows and looting any remaining food. The troops that put down the 1905 insurrection were not so inclined in 1917, and any enforcement visited upon the population only amplified their fury. Nicholas attempted to return to the capital by train, but was stopped by news that mutinous soldiers had seized control of parts of the railroad. On March 2, 1917, in his railroad car, Nicholas II came to the conclusion that the situation was untenable. He abdicated the throne for himself and for his son. The following day, the abdication of his brother Michael would formally end 300 years of the House of Romanov's rule over Russia. Nicholas returned to Sarsko-Salo and house arrest with the rest of his family. The head of the provisional government, Alexander Kerensky, and other officials were concerned that the grave of Rasputin might become a shrine for his adherents, and even those wishing to restore the Romanovs to the throne. They quickly began an investigation to determine where the secret burial spot of Rasputin was located. It did not take long to extricate a metal coffin containing the remains from the grounds of the unfinished chapel. From here, like many aspects of Rasputin's life, the exact details of what happened next become murky. One account has him being transported towards Petrograd by truck, only the truck getting stuck on the way and the men charged with getting rid of him forced to improvise a funeral pyre in a secret forest location. Another has his body being incinerated in a crude crematorium, ashes disposed of surreptitiously. However it happened, the body of Grigory Rasputin, disappeared without a trace. By March, Yusupov, released by the provisional government, was back in Petrograd, throwing parties and granting interviews. Rasputin's wife and children returned to Pokrovsko. For the prince and his family, this would be only a momentary reversal of fortune. The Yusupov family would ride out the revolutionary storm of 1918 in the Crimea, returning to St. Petersburg only to retrieve jewelry and two Rembrandts secreted in their Moika palace. They fled Russia on the same British battleship that transported the dowager Empress Maria, Grand Duke Nicholas and his brother Peter, and the Montenegrin Grand Duchesses, who would first introduce Rasputin to the Russian court. The Yusupovs eventually settled in Paris, surviving on memoirs, various lawsuits against film studios, and whatever assets they could sell off, including their paintings that wound up eventually in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., Felix died in a Paris suburb in 1967, his wife Irina in 1970. Grand Duke Dimitri's banishment to the Caucasus meant that he avoided the clutches of the vengeful Bolsheviks who murdered most of his relatives. Via Tehran and the help of the British Embassy, he made his way to Europe, living first in England and then in Paris. His major claim was his subsequent relationship with prominent women, among them Coco Chanel broke he ultimately married a cincinnati heiress they divorced a decade later and dimitri died of tuberculosis age 50 in 1942 in davos switzerland the other conspirators all faded quickly in the 20s Perishkevich from typhus sukotin and lazover dying in obscurity in paris needless to say rasputin's immediate family had a rough go of it after the revolution Their large house in Pokrovskou was seized by the Bolsheviks. Only Rasputin's daughter Maria was safely able to emigrate to the West. His wife, other daughter and son, all harassed by the Bolsheviks, were dead by 1933. Maria was able to capitalize on her famous name and performed in cabarets and even as a circus performer. She eventually settled in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles teaching foreign language and writing her memoirs, which only added more contrived melodrama to the Rasputin legend. She died in 1977 and is buried in, of all places, a cemetery on Venice Boulevard in metropolitan L.A. Among the most famous of the Rasputin legends is his alleged December 1916 written pronouncement that if he was to die by the hands of the royal family, then the Tsar and his children would be killed by the Russian people within two years and the country would be then plagued by a literal antichrist. While dramatically impressive, the existence of the letter was proclaimed in the memoirs of Rasputin's secretary and associate, Aaron Simonovich, supposedly written to Alexandra, The letter had no provenance and may have been merely another attempt to sell books, but it was quoted throughout the 20th century and only added to the portrait of Rasputin as a uniquely gifted clairvoyant and prophet. Whether or not he was able to predict the fate of Nicholas II, it is clear that the royal family would desperately cling to their notion of Rasputin as a supernatural force of protection against evil and destruction. Transported by the provisional government to the remote Siberian city of Tobolsk, Nicholas and his family would eventually be seized by the Bolsheviks and transported to a location in another nearby Siberian town, Ekaterinburg, and a dwelling already designated by the local Soviet as the House of Special Purpose. On July 17, 1918, the Romanov prisoners and the rest of their small entourage were awakened in the middle of the night and told that they were to quickly dress and prepare to be moved again ostensibly to evade white russian forces about to enter the city led into the basement of the house the entire group was then brutally executed by pistols rifles and bayonets wielded by a specially chosen execution squad transported to a remote mine shaft the corpses were stripped of all clothing and valuables before being thrown into the mine doused with sulfuric acid burnt with gasoline and shattered by grenades Among the jewels and valuables that were recovered were four lockets worn by the four grand duchesses. Inside of each was a prayer written by and a portrait of Grigory Efimovich Rasputin. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Grigory Rasputin. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith and The Rasputin File by Edvard Redzinski. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page some very famous people, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.